It's March 20th, 2011, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome to another episode of the show. I have received a great response to the last episode, which featured my conversation with Jeffrey Sidoris of the Faded and Blurred podcast and website. I wasn't sure how the episode was going to be received, but I'm very happy to know that the conversation resonated with so many of you. We'll be continuing this conversation periodically on the show and elsewhere, so stay tuned for more on that front. I know that this show has become a big part of many of your photographic lives, and I want to encourage you to help support the show in a variety of ways. You can do that by spreading the word about the show with others in your camera clubs and associations, as well as promoting it on your blogs or Twitter or Facebook. Every little bit helps to get the word out. As well, reviews of the show on the iTunes Music Store are always appreciated. And of course, any donations of $10, $20, $50, or even more are always welcome. You can make donations by simply clicking on the PayPal link on the Candid Frame website. Now, today's guest is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who is one of those photographers who's helping to redefine storytelling in the digital age. Deanne Fitzmorris has created award winning stories with still images. But she is also on the forefront of using multimedia as an important photojournalistic tool. Her stories of a young Iraqi boy recovering from horrific wounds to the life of a young mother in a carnival demonstrate both her keen sense of story and her sensitivity to the humanity of her subjects. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Deanne Fitzmaurice. Well, Deanne, welcome to the Candid Frame. I'm, I'm glad with that we, we finally were able to sit down and, and talk to each other. I'm excited to have the chance to speak to you about you and your work. Yeah, great. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. I'm um, you know, really impressed with the work that you're doing on your show and um, happy to be invited. Um, and thanks for your patience with my schedule. Oh, absolutely. Well, one of the things I really love about your work is how you end up telling really large stories, but through the prism of a very personal point of view. And whether it's travails of a, of a young boy impacted by war, you find a way of being able to turn a really, you know, a really unique eye to reveal, to reveal something that could be easily overwhelming. Um, how much is that part of your training as a photojournalist? And how much is of that is that your own sort of personal interest in in people's lives? Well, I think that's a great question, and, um, and the answer is multifaceted. You know, I think that um, as my training as a photojournalist at the San Francisco Chronicle, I really had to learn how to tell a story in one picture. So that took, you know, just a lot of practice, really. You know, you'd get sent out on a story, and you'd have to figure out what the story is and figure out the best way to tell it. And usually, they were just going to run one picture. So you had to get all the elements into one picture. So I think that has helped in terms of communicating and communicating really clearly. 
I also think that being thrown into so many situations as a photographer at the Chronicle for so many years, you have to learn how to just, you walk into a situation and you have to size it up. You have to figure it out. You have to put people at ease. You have to understand what's going on. So there's a lot going on um, when you work, when you walk into a situation like that. But the thing that I have always strived to do is make a connection with my subject. And to do that, I've had to learn to build trust and in a very short period of time to make people understand that you, um, you know, kind of are honest and truthful and real. And sometimes I'll even, you know, just put my camera down for a minute and just talk to people and you know, just make this human connection with them and put them at ease. And, and then I feel like, you know, maybe I'll even tell them something about me or, you know, just make some kind of a human connection because it is weird when, you know, someone just comes barging into your life and, you know, you just need to go about what you're doing. It's, it's awkward. So, I try to put people at ease, and I try to build trust and just build that human connection. Now, the story that you had brought up about Salah, um, I'm not sure how many of your listeners know about the story. Um, it was a story about a little Iraqi boy who came to America for medical treatment. And through most of 2004, I followed his journey. Um, he and his father came over here. And he was severely injured. And, um, and so I ended up following his story for a year and more. Um, I'm actually continuing to follow it to this day, uh, follow Salah and his story. But what I had to do is, I mean, it was just a daily assignment. I was, I was asked to go in and photograph this Iraqi boy that came to America, and the idea was it would be published in the next day's paper, and that would be that. However, we, the writer and I, we were just so taken aback at what we saw. You know, we just had to go walking out into the hall of the, of the hospital and just, you know, kind of collect ourselves. But we decided that we wanted to continue with this story, um, you know, until he left to go back to Iraq. But what I had to do is I had to um, gain their trust, and that was Salah and his father. I had to, I had to, you know, there were levels of, um, of trust I had to build. You know, first of all, I had to um, get the hospital to agree to let me come in and do this story. And there are these really tough privacy laws. And so they... You know, it took me a while to be able to build up that. And it just, I think a lot of my approach with that is just to um, be myself and be honest and tell people why I think this story is important. So I did that with the hospital administrators, but then I did that with Salah and Rahim, his dad, as well. And that was difficult because of the language barrier. So it's not just the building the trust. Um, you know, I also had to um, communicate that to them. And so I would use the opportunity whenever there was an interpreter there to, but also just um, 
kind of body language. And, and so eventually I was able to build trust with them. But I think that's a real backbone to what I try to do with my work. Um, you know, I really believe strongly in photojournalism and in storytelling and communicating and, um, you know, communicating um, issues, big issues that are going on in our world. And I like to just try to bring it down to a real human level so that people can connect, you know, and just on this universal level. Well, the issue of trust is uh, is a really important one because you're you're being provided an opportunity to really be in, intrusive, you know, with this with this camera, with this recording equipment. Yet, yet what you're doing is being able to share the unique experiences of another human being in in a newspaper or in a multimedia project. But sometimes there's, I'm sure that you're presented with with situations where. Um, it may be real, real challenge that you know that you have to be very careful about not just what you shoot, but how you end up presenting that work, you know, when you're sitting down to edit it. So how do you sort of strike that balance of being able to honestly tell the story yet not be exploitive? Yeah, it is a tricky thing, and it's something that I have always tried to find that right line, you know, to walk that right line of doing what I have to do as a photojournalist in terms of the honesty of the story. Um, you know, for example, there was one moment when I was photographing Salah, and he just broke down crying, and he fell to the ground at his father's feet, sobbing. And it was a situation where it was just Salah and his dad and me. And I'm standing there with my camera, and it was an incredibly emotional moment. And I know that, I think Salah was so upset, he really wasn't aware of me, but Rahim was aware of me. And so there's just this moment where you say, okay, do I pick up the camera and shoot this? Of course there's the real human thing where, yeah, you want to help, you want to console, but there's the journalistic thing where, I need to capture this moment so that people will understand and care about this person. And so what I do sometimes is I just, when I'm in that situation, I'll take the camera and lift it up halfway to my face and just kind of look at people's body language and see if they're reacting to that. And if I feel like they're not reacting, then I, I feel like, okay, you know, I can shoot this picture. But it's just this little fine line of um, watching people's energy. And, you know, I want to tell the story, but I don't want to cross the line of of being shut out of the story. You know, these people allow you into their lives, and you don't want to you don't want to cross that boundary where where they feel like you are going over the line. But it is an incredible responsibility that we have. It's an incredible honor that we have being let into these people's lives to tell their stories. But there's a huge responsibility that comes with that, you know, and it's really just a responsibility of honesty. You know, we just have to tell the true story. That's... That's very interesting, considering that how a lot of people end up seeing journalists as being sort of, you know, vultures, 
documenting, you know, people who are in very difficult situations and a lot of pain. But I think you make a great point in, in that how important it is to be respectful, to be honest, yet how important it is to be able to tell those stories, because otherwise they wouldn't get told and people wouldn't, you know, discover some important things about not only the world in general, but important things about their own community. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, when I talk to people and explain to them why I want to do a story, because many times the initial reaction is no, because, yeah, maybe they're concerned about, um, well, many things, really, you know, how they'll be portrayed. And, um, you know, a lot of times they're in a situation that is so extremely difficult and they've got so much going on that the last thing they want to do is add another element to that. So I, what I try to do is just really be honest with them and just tell them right from my heart why I want to do this story and why I think it's important. And usually people believe that what's going on with them is important and they really do want to share that. But but you just have to make it comfortable for them and and I think get them to kind of sign on and say, yeah, I believe this is important, and so I'm going to um, you know, give you the access you're asking for. Well, where, where does respectful tenacity come into play then? Because I think that there, there, there are some people that are going to give you some initial pushback, and how do you decide which ones do you keep going back to and saying and trying to convince them the importance of what you're trying to do and other ones where you just kind of let it go? I think it depends on a couple of things. One of them is how hard your editor is pushing you. <laughs> Seriously. You know, I've been in that situation before, and my editor is just pushing me, saying, what do you mean? He said, no, go back. You know, we, we need this. We need this story. And sometimes I agree with them, and sometimes I don't. But, yeah, you know, there are... Um, yeah, there are different ways to look at it, I think. Um, sometimes I care so much about the story that I'll just continue pushing. But you're right. There is a point where you push so much and they just are done with you. So I try to be creative and, you know, just think about, I try to think of it from their point of view and I try to think about, okay, why are they saying no? And sometimes I figure it out. Um, I was recently working on a story with, um, I was um, a photographing um, a subject, and I wanted to interview him, and he just kept saying no, no, no to the interview. He was fine with the still photography, but didn't want to be interviewed, and I just couldn't figure out why he wouldn't agree to that, you know? He was giving me time to do the still photograph. And I finally figured it out. It's because he's uncomfortable speaking in public. And so once you kind of understand what their reasoning is, that does help. And so I just try to, you know, I do different things. Sometimes it's like, okay, um, I'll make them some prints from the last shoot that I was on with them. And and then sometimes they see your work and they, they say, well, you know, this... Um, you know, this is really 
telling a story. Mm-hmm. And somehow they kind of um, buy in. So, But, you know, of course there are the times where it just, you know, you feel like you're beating your head against a wall and they just won't come around. So yeah, I think it's a combination of, um, you know, just how far to push. A lot of your, a lot of your stories don't happen as, as a result of just doing one, one shoot for a couple of hours. It involves you going back probably repeatedly to, to sort of flesh that out. But tell us about the whole process of, of editing as you're producing the images, about assessing the images that you've already produced and the other images that you need to make in order to tell that sort of complete story. How much of, of that is sort of worked out you know, beforehand, and how much of it is as a result of the, your, the collaboration with an editor? Well, when I do a long-term project, my general approach is very organic. It's very photojournalistic, and I don't have a lot of preconceived notions before I go into a story. I might have a couple of ideas, but I really think that real life is way better than anything that I can dream up. So I just like to let moments unfold and let the story take its course and go where it just goes naturally rather than me figuring it out. Um, When I work on a story, sometimes what I do is I, um, for example, um, on the Salah story again, he was in the hospital for six weeks. And during that period of time, I would try to be there when something was scheduled, something important was happening. Say he was scheduled to surgery or um, you know, say it was um, the day he's being released from the hospital. You know, I would try to be there during important times, but I also would try to be there just during an ordinary day. I would just show up at the hospital and just see what was going on. And some of the best pictures I got came from that. Where normally you'd think, okay, I need to be here on this day, on this day, you know, and have it all kind of worked out or storyboarded. And I find that um, I really, when I have the time, it's incredible to just be able to let the story flow like that and develop on its own. You were in Haiti um, a year ago, soon after the, the the earthquake there. You know what? I didn't go to Haiti. I wanted to go, but I didn't. Oh, okay. No, nope, no. Nope. I, I had hoped to go, but maybe you had heard me um, um, uh, trying to figure out how I was going to go, but I but I did not go. And and what happened there? What was the, tell, tell us about your desire to go there. What you had hoped to get. Um, to go there and do and you know and talk about the stories that you want to do but manage not to be able to you know most of my work over the years has been um, has been in this country Um, you know a lot of it is because you know I worked at the San Francisco Chronicle for a long time and we didn't do a lot of international travel so um, it's something that I have wanted to do, and I would like to do more international travel. Um, you know, I think there are so many incredibly important stories to tell. But I, the Haiti story, when that happened, it, you know, it's just as a photojournalist, you just want to be there. You want to be there telling those stories. You want to be there documenting that. So... So I looked into it and, um, you know, looked at different ways I could go, and it, it never quite came together. You know, it just, um, 
it was a really difficult situation um, working there, getting there, and and I wasn't able to make it happen. But you know, it was something that I think it's just kind of in your blood as a photojournalist when there is an incredible like story like that happening. You know, that's just affecting millions of people. You just you just you just want to be there. You want to be telling the story. One of the stories that did take you abroad was the one that you did on the sex trade, and you documented uh, the sex trade in in Asia. Uh-huh. Talk about, um, if you would, how that story came about, and some of the challenges that you had in terms of some of the things we've already talked about, in terms of gaining access, gaining trust, and being able to, you know, tell the the, the story of what's what's happening with respect to that topic. That was a very difficult story to do on so many levels. Um, what was happening is in San Francisco there were these um, massage parlors and there um, there were these busts going on where um, you know, they were raiding these places and finding out that a lot of the women there were really being held against their will, that they um, you know were basically kept as slaves, you know, they really couldn't leave, and it was, it was just an incredible situation, you know, when we started realizing this is happening in San Francisco. So a writer at the Chronicle and I, um, you know, decided we wanted to do this story, and and that's just such a huge challenge. How do you tell this story? Because you know, these women don't want to talk, um, you know, because um, of the dangers that they face. And so we did find um, one young woman who had been in that situation, had got out, and, um, you know, it's kind of like you just follow this trail. And uh, through an immigration attorney, we had found out about her, and she really wanted to share her story. She felt like it was really important. So it worked out great for the writer because she was able to write this entire story based on what this young woman told her. And it was just incredible what she told us. However, how was I going to photograph that? Um, For one thing, it had happened in the past. And that's a situation with a lot of the stories that we do. You have to illustrate something that has already happened. So there was that challenge. So what we decided to do was to retrace her steps, retrace the steps of this young woman. And she had come from Korea. And um, and so we went to the places where she came from and tried to understand the sex industry there and what was going on. Um, But, you know, the way I really love to work is by making a connection with the subject and just really getting in deep. And I felt like I wasn't able to do that on this story. So it was very frustrating because I felt like my work was, it was touching on an important subject, but I felt like I was never able to get deep enough with it to really humanize um, the people. And I, and I, and I see that, in in a lot of your work, I saw I saw it particularly in the Coney Island story, the the multimedia piece that you did mm-hmm. on the on the young woman that works at uh, at the carnival. Mm-hmm. And I looked at that and I went. On one level, it's it's really obvious that what the story could have been in terms of here's 
this you know this wonderful character in this woman who works at this you know fantastical legendary location and yet you delve a lot deeper and you reveal the humanity of this woman and particularly her her desire to to have family to have that be an important part of her life, which connects her to anyone who looks at the piece. And I think that's one of the reasons why it resonates so much that I feel so connected to her by the time I'm finished watching it. And that was a story that we did in um, really just about a week or less than a week. So, um, yeah, I do really try to do that, you know, make a connection with the subject. But in this case, everything just came together beautifully. Some stories I work on are just really difficult, and some stories just come together seamlessly, and this one did. And the way this story came about, um, it's a story about um, this circus performer, and she's actually the knife-throwing target for Throdini at the Coney Island Circus Sideshow. And, um, you know, after I left the Chronicle, I left the Chronicle about two and a half years ago, I wanted to figure out multimedia, um, you know, high-definition video on my um, SLR. So I went to MediaStorm and took a workshop there, and it was just great. And the way it works is um, there were a few of us. Um, you worked together as a team. There were three of us. And we wanted to come up with a story. You know, what's a great story that we can tell in one week in New York? So we all started researching. And, you know, we were just finding these kind of off-the-wall topics, but trying to find something that was concise enough that you could that you could put together a story, you know, in about, we probably just had like two or three days of shooting. You know, so something that wasn't all over the place. It was more of more or less one character. So um, in the course of researching this, I found Chrissy. And, you know, and it sounded great. Okay, first of all, I thought, okay, this has great visuals. You know, she's, you know, she's just incredible. You know, she's um, working at this, um, at the sideshow. And so visually, it just had all kinds of elements. But then I had to say, okay, well, you know, we need more than that to tell a story. So as I was researching her, I found out, okay, she has a couple little kids and, you know, raising her family. And I thought, okay, this, that's good. That's a nice juxtaposition. There may be a story here. Contacted her and, um, you know, about access. And she said, yes, yeah, sure, no problem. And then I contacted Coney Island. They said, yes, yeah, sure, no problem. Come on in. Well, it wasn't that easy, but <laughs> eventually they said that. And so... So we just spent a few days, um, you know, shooting still, shooting video, and interviewing her, and putting it together as a multimedia piece, and it came together beautifully. Um, and then sometimes you get these great surprises when you're working on a story. Like we thought it was about an interesting character, you know, who's just kind of living her life. But then as we get into it more and start interviewing her, we find out that her mother left her when she was five years old, and she never really had a family, and now she's finding her family in the circus and, you know, by creating her own family. So it had this extra layer to it. So sometimes it just, you know, comes together really nicely like that one did. And it speaks to the idea of just being open to those those surprises, those gifts that you can have as a result of sort of ingratiating yourself into 
into someone else's someone else's life. Yeah, and um, you know, I think I think a lot of it just comes down to just rolling with the story and seeing where it goes, and it's almost like just letting your subject tell their own story and just being there, putting people at ease, and then being there to capture moments in their lives and looking for moments that really reveal something about who they are. What are some of the challenges now that you're getting into multimedia? You spoke earlier about creating a story with a single image because of the limitations of in a newspaper, but now you're creating a wealth of not only still images, but video and audio. And now you're talking about, you know, the the limitations not of the page, but maybe of the time constraints that you want to you want to limit the the piece to. Um, how is that changing the way that you tell a, a story as a photojournalist? Well, when I left the Chronicle two and a half years ago, started to freelance, I thought I was going to be a magazine photographer. That was just in my head. That's what I thought I would do. And it's just kind of evolved on its own. And, you know, I've got a couple of good magazine clients, but the bulk of my work is coming from multimedia. And I'm really excited about it, very enthusiastic, and I think there is great opportunity for photographers there. There are so many challenges, which I love because I'm learning so much. You know, as a still photographer telling stories, I mean, I I love still photography and I love putting together a photo essay, but now I can add so much more richness and depth by having the subject tell their story in their own voice, like a Chrissy Cocktail. And just to add these other elements, I'm finding that I can add so much to my storytelling. But not only that, there is great opportunity to get it out there to a wider audience with the web. And you know, to have longer pieces, to show more images. So I really think that it's the future, and so I'm just learning it and embracing it and really having fun with it. But there's so much that I have to learn. Um, you know, I, I'm i getting some clients, and um, some of the clients who want these multimedia pieces have a good budget. And in that case, I can hire people to help me, you know, kind of work as a team. You know, I might hire an audio person or... Um, or hire a producer, somebody who's going to do the um, post-production. And it's great when I can do that because it is a lot for one person to take on, to try to do everything. But many times I'm working with a client who doesn't have a big budget, and so I go out, um, kind of the one-man band or backpack photojournalist approach, and I try to really... um, just do it all. And so that means I'm shooting still pictures, I'm shooting video, and I'm doing all the video with a high-definition DSLR. And I am compensating for the um, audio challenges on that camera by using external mics and um, you know external recorders. And I'm shooting video, and it's it's really different than shooting stills. And so, you know, just the shots that you need are really different and the challenges of um, keeping your shots smooth and 
telling a story in clips and making sure that you have, um, you know, good cuts. And, you know, the thing I've learned from the little bit of post-production that I know how to do is it's really helped me figure out what I need to get when I'm out there in the field, you know, the kind of imagery I need to get to make the editing process smoother. But not only am I having to learn that, it's like I'm interviewing people now. So, um, you know, miking them and asking them the questions and figuring out how to ask the questions so you get answers in a complete sentence and, um, you know, to tell the story in their own voice. So it's um, a lot of challenges. Well, you're co-founder of uh, Think Tank, uh, and you guys make a variety of different bags and accessories for people to carry and, and be able to use their gear. And I saw in one of the videos where you were, were showing um, one, of the, one of the kits you have that's specifically designed for multimedia, and you have the, the, the capacity for the, for the cameras themselves, the mics, the headphones. And I looked at all that and I go, oh, my God, all that stuff that you have to negotiate now, where before it may have just been a camera and some lenses. Um, how does that sort of change the whole dynamic that you have when you're out there, you know, on the street by yourself, especially producing, you know, producing this content? And you have all these different things that are not just exclusively for the still, but that you have to consider for video and for sound. Yeah, well, um, we started Think Tank um, about six years ago. It was um, my husband and I, um, two photographers and two bag designers. And a lot of the reason was is because the bags we needed didn't exist. And so when I started doing multimedia, um, you know, um, a couple years ago, I would have that problem that you described where I'm trying to hold my camera and I've got mics and I've got headphones and you know it's just crazy and you know the cords are getting all uh, tangled up and I was just thinking boy there's got to be a solution here somewhere you know how do we manage this and so you know together with our designers we you know tried to figure out is there a system is there a solution and so we did come out with a with a um a line of bags, our multimedia bags that hold mics and, um, you know, hold an audio recorder so you can um, flip open the bag and you can see the levels on the recorder. And and we have these um, kind of little um, um, ports um, in the bag where you can feed a cord through it. Um, you know, so you um, just trying to manage all these cords. You know, we've been trying to come up with solutions for that. But yeah, you are carrying an incredible amount of equipment when you're trying to do the um, the multimedia, and you know at times it's overwhelming, and you're thinking, okay, um, what should I be doing right now? Should I be shooting stills? Should I be shooting video? Or should I be collecting audio? And I find that I just have to make a decision and just go 100% into one thing at a time, or or they all suffer. What opportunities do you think this is? multimedia is going to provide you professionally now that you're away from, from, from the newspaper. What are you hoping to be able to do that you wouldn't have been able to do at, at a newspaper? Well, you know, things were changing at the paper and, um, 
you know, there really wasn't the opportunity to continue working on photo stories, you know, just in terms of time, um, you know, limited staff and limited budgets. So I really feel like now with multimedia, I can really tell a story. I can um, you know, spend the time that I need to do it. And I think there's opportunity. Um, you know, some of my clients are foundations and nonprofits. And so I think there's incredible opportunity there to do what photojournalists love to do, and that's storytelling, telling stories about social issues and trying to humanize these issues. And I think a lot of these nonprofits and foundations would love to work with photojournalists who really know how to tell stories. And so I look at that as a um, you know, great place for, for us to think about doing work in the future. Well, there's a lot of changes, as you mentioned, in terms of the newspaper and, and the magazine industry in terms of audiences for for this work and and but there's so many photographers and videographers that are going out there that are producing this content where where do you see the of these people finding the audience for these amazing stories that you want to tell well i think a i think a great scenario is to look into these foundations and these nonprofits and whether it's just teaming up with something that's local, that's in your area, or look for a big international NGO that's uh, doing work overseas. Um, but I think that, they're, that, that that's a place that I'm seeing for storytelling. But, you know, there are, there are different ways of going about it. Um, for example, right after I left the Chronicle, I... I was like, said, okay, now I'm a freelancer, you know, um, where do I go from here? So I decided to start working on a personal project, and um, that was 2008, and um, it was in the midst of the, um, of the same-sex marriages in San Francisco. And so I found this couple, went out and followed them a little bit to do a story, um, Frank and Joe, and, um, and I didn't know what I was going to do with this. You know, I was just basically... Um, shooting stills at that point on this project. So I ended up going to New York, and I met with some editors and showed them what I had. And, and through this project, I really learned about how doing multimedia can open up uh, multiple revenue streams for us. Um, what I did with this story is um, um, Time Magazine published some still images from it, MSNBC said, um, we'd love to run a multimedia piece on this. Can you interview these guys and you know, get us an interview? So I did that. So it was you know, running as still photos and it was running as multimedia. And then I also was able to do stock sales with it and um, you know, sell some prints and things like that. So I think that that that's something that we can think about. Um, another project I just finished them, I was following – um, an athlete um, behind the scenes throughout the season for Sports Illustrated, and um, it's uh, Tim Lincecum. And, um, you know, just like very fortuitous, the Giants ended up going to the World Series, and, you know, Tim Lincecum was a big star pitcher in the World Series. So after all that, you know, I had this great body of work, I decided to do a book. So, you know, I did this um, self-published book called Freak Season, and that's something that, 
is new and that I'm learning about. Um, I still have mixed feelings on the um, self-published print-on-demand. So it's kind of a new model, and um, it's all pretty new. You know, I'm just the book's just coming out now. So, so I think that we really have to think about these multiple revenue streams with the work that we're doing. Um, I teach students who are, are going to be venturing out into the professional world of photographers uh, and photography, and a lot of them are interested primarily in in portraiture, particularly for magazines and in newspapers. But I know that you've also taught at, uh, I think, at, uh, at the Barnstorm, Eddie Adams Workshop. Yes. And I'm curious to see that what is that generation of photographers that are coming up? What are their hopes in terms of what they want to do in in a market that's sort of really sort of unpredictable unpredictable and, and changing as much as it is? What um, what are they hoping in, in terms of the world of photography for themselves? And how are you helping them to sort of segue into that? I think that students have, students today still have the same hopes and dreams that, you know, all photojournalists have had. You just are driven to go out and tell these stories. So the question is, how do you do it? And I, I see it as a tremendous time for us to go out and tell these stories. Um, it's changing. You know, it's not the way it used to be. You know, print is no longer the big game in town. It's multimedia and it's the web. So I think we just have to rethink things and do them differently. And I just think there's tremendous opportunity there. You know, it's the market, I wouldn't say it's shrunk, it's shifted. And so I think we have to look at the opportunities, you know. We can self-publish, look at what we can do with the web, you know, with our own blogs and websites. So so there's that. But I also think that we really have to diversify and by doing a lot of different things, you know, um, by just being open to to lots of different things, you know, like like in terms of doing still photography, doing multimedia, um, um, you know, teaching workshops, um, um, you know, being an entrepreneur, you know, that's um, kind of how Think Tank came about. So I think that um, that we really just need to um, broaden, and um, I think there's plenty of opportunity there. Well, the last question I always ask is that I ask a photographer to recommend another photographer for our listeners to explore and discover. And it can be anybody from someone you've long admired to someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Oh, there are so many photographers who I have such great respect for. Um, Since I'm currently um, kind of obsessed with multimedia, um, I've been looking a lot at the work of Ed Cashy. Um, you know, he he started as a still photographer, photojournalist, and he has reinvented himself. And not only is he doing incredibly powerful photo essays, um, you know, for magazines and for NGOs, um, but he's also doing incredible work with video and with multimedia. So I really admire what he's done. I know he recently signed on with the Agency 7, 
And he's just someone I really respect because he's remained true to his photojournalistic roots, but grown with the changes and with the times. And he just has such an incredible eye and, you know, just a great heart. I really, um, you know, think a lot of him. Well, thank you so much. And uh, before we go, why don't you tell our listeners where they can find more about you and all the things that you're doing? Yeah, um, probably my website is the best place, and it is deannefitzmorris.com. Um, and I do have a blog connected to my website. Um, it's in need of a little bit of updating, but um, but anyway, um, that that gives a pretty good indication of, of what I'm doing. And um, our camera bag company is thinktankphoto.com. And I'll have links for all of that on the website. But uh, thank you, Deanne. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for joining me for another episode. If you have any comments, email me at thecandidframe at gmail.com or post a message on the blog at thecandidframe.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, or Flickr. Links to each can be found on the website. Till next time, this is Ibarian X. Pirello, and this is The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. photocastnetwork.com.